Well, we are in this uh, series on the book of Genesis, and uh, I think we've, we're at least going through chapter 11. Genesis is an interesting book. You get 11 chapters leading up to, from the beginning, leading up to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then from chapter 12 on, you get the story of the patriarchs. And so we're at least going through chapter 11. You can imagine if we uh, went through 50 chapters of Genesis, it'd take a while, wouldn't it? So we're, we're thinking about that. We're praying about that. But uh, we're at least going through 11. And uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see where else the Lord uh, takes us. Um, so Genesis chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Let's pray together as we ask God to help us as we consider his word this morning. Uh, yes, Father, as we celebrate a communion, we stand uh, as those who are completely dependent upon your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and our hearts are encouraged knowing that our righteousness, our standing before you is not based on us. It's not based on our goodness. It's based on the goodness of Jesus. And because Jesus can never sin and never die, we know that you will always be pleased with his sacrifice. We can always stand before you as sons and daughters through faith in him and his finished work. And so indeed, Father, every time we remember that, as we sing, as we hear from your word, as we partake of those elements of communion, Father, we are reminded that we are secure in Christ and what he's done. And I pray, Father, that, that would continue to fill us with joy. Just as the, uh, the psalmist said earlier, what can we offer you, Father, for your goodness to us? And he doesn't conclude that, that it is uh, deeds of goodness or that it's uh, uh, any other thing that we might do thinking we have to do something to earn your forgiveness. Rather, it is simply to call upon you and rejoice in the gift of salvation that you have given freely in your grace. And so, Father, that's what we do this morning. We continually call out to you because we recognize that we are continually in need of your grace. Father, as we come to this text, we are thousands of years removed would you help us through your spirit to understand what you want us to hear? And Father, we know that you didn't give us this text to make us smarter sinners, Father. You wanted to change our lives. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would work to sculpt and to shape our hearts to what you want them to be. And we need you to do that. Would you take a few moments quietly? Don't say anything out loud because that would be strange, but uh, just ask God to speak to your heart this morning as we look at his word. And then if you would, please uh, just take a few minutes or a few moments quietly and pray for me. Pray that God would speak through me, that he would do through me what I can't do myself. Father, we come to you humbly. We come to you in need. 
There's nothing here that we can do in ourselves. Father, we need you to work in us. So we invite that and we pray for that this morning. And we pray it on the basis of Jesus, our Savior, in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, do you remember the the name Steve Irwin? I remember the name Steve Irwin. Uh, he was the crocodile hunter, right? Uh, he became popular before his death. I think it was around 2008 that he died. But if you've never heard of him, Steve Irwin was an employee of the Australian Zoo. And he worked, as a, he worked in the animal rescue division, right? So he would go uh, and, and, and he would rescue animals that were sick or wounded or had wandered into some dangerous area. But if you ever saw his show, uh, The Crocodile Hunter, you know that he specialized in rescuing, I'll put that in air quotes, rescuing uh, and then wrestling like eight foot, 10 foot crocodiles, right? And he was notorious for confronting these crocodiles, but he was also famous, I thought, when I would watch it, he was also famous for finding the most poisonous snake in the world, right? And then he would chase it up a tree, grab it by the tail, as he's dodging the, the strikes of this snake and all the while explaining to you, the audience, how deadly, you know, it was what he was doing. And he had this laugh and whatever. And so many people would call Steve crazy, perhaps rightly so. Amen. Amen. I hear that. Amen. Uh, so, and, and many people would say, but why doesn't he just stay away from that which is so dangerous. Doesn't he know that he's playing with death, right? Well, here's the sad thing. The sad thing is that we often don't realize that we do the exact same thing. Listen, sin is much more dangerous than any crocodile or snake that we could encounter. Here's what you know. Sin destroys lives, doesn't it? And Satan, uh, our enemy, Satan leverages our fallenness in order to destroy us. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is what Satan seeks to do. And we saw that last week, didn't we, in Genesis chapter 3. But here's what else you know. That sin doesn't just stop with our own destruction. Sin destroys the lives of people around us as well. And so this story today uh, extends the ripples of sin's destructiveness into the family at large. And look, let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Some of us, even today, are playing with sin, completely oblivious to the danger. See, Steve Irwin knew that what he was doing was dangerous, and he took precautions to protect himself. But sadly, often we don't. And sin devours us, just like we'll see today. Humanity's at a low point here in Genesis chapter 4, and uh, we are just getting started with this downward spiral of humanity. Uh, The next few weeks, you're going to see names that 
you never thought of naming your kid, but they're, they're weird names, they're strange names. But you're going to see this curse that was, uh, that was enacted in Genesis 3. You're going to see this downward spiral of humanity until we get to Genesis 6 and the flood. And God is going to judge humanity. Adam and Eve have just been removed from the garden, chapter 3, and removed from the direct presence of the Lord. Remember, the flaming sword of the angel is guarding the way to the tree of life. And remember from last week, this happens so that God might save humanity later through the seed of the woman. So the curse has been enacted, and life is, is definitely not what it used to be. It's different. Life in the paradise of Eden is no more. And so it's at this low point that we enter the next phase of this human tragedy. If there was any doubt whether the the posterity of Adam and Eve were going to be rebels just like their parents, it's put to rest after this chapter today. In fact, what we'll see is Adam and Eve's posterity are going to do even worse things. Uh, than what they saw in their parents. This is the story of Cain and Abel. It's one, of those, uh, it's one of those stories that you've probably, if you've had any relationship with the church, you've probably heard a hundred times. The story of Cain and Abel. And it can show us a lot about the way sin operates in our lives. Because here's what we see in the life of Cain. We see that when sin gets its foot stuck in the door... It ends up blowing everything apart. It blows the door wide open. It's like a rifle shot. Uh, The entry wound may be quite small, but when it comes out of the back, it has blown everything apart. We start to see its destructive power here as Cain allows sin to creep in and eventually to overpower him completely. Well, this story begins uh, as Eve gives birth to their first child. And she exclaims in verse 1, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. No doubt Eve is excited about the birth of this child. And, you know, as many of you ladies might have done, she gives thanks to the Lord for getting her through this process, which seemingly was a lot different now after Genesis 3. Now, we don't know the interval uh, but we see in the text in verse 2 uh, where we, we transition now to a later time, or verse 3, in the course of time. We don't know the interval, but we fast forward to this time when Cain and Abel, brothers, uh, are heading out to the field. Uh, she's given birth again to, uh, to Abel. Uh, we see in verse 1, Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. And incidentally, the text isn't here trying to make a, a value judgment about their occupations. God has nothing against farming, right? Uh, all we see, all the text wants us to see is that Abel's a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. So verse 3, we're, we're back from break. Again, we begin a new episode within the story. We fast forward to a time when Cain and Abel were, were bringing uh, a, a tribute offering to God. And we shouldn't assume here that God had given them some specific instructions. This, this is meant to be seen as simply an offering of thanksgiving 
to God, a recognition that God has provided, and so a tribute and a thanksgiving offering to him. We read in verse 3 that Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground, but Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, just note the difference in the way those two offerings are described by the author. Cain is pictured as almost as merely discharging a duty. Well, when you read that Cain brought uh, some of the fruit of the ground, it sounds to me anyway that uh, like a, a little boy writing a thank you note to an aunt that had gotten him socks for Christmas. He, he doesn't necessarily mean it it seems, but it's something that he feels he has to do. Something seems to be going on in Cain's heart here. The text presents it seemingly as if Cain grabs some fruit from the pile and takes it before the Lord almost half-heartedly. We're not told it was the first fruits, but that it was some of the fruit. Abel, though, on the other hand, Abel is seen as offering not only his very best, the firstborn, but offering their best portions to God. The Hebrew text indicates that that Abel brought the, the fat portions, and the fat portions would have been considered the choicest part of the animal being offered. So, Presumably, Abel could have offered the fat portions from a, a, another animal, from a lesser animal. Or he could have kept the choicest parts of the best animal for himself, but he doesn't. Instead, out of thanksgiving to God, he gives the best portions of the best animal as an offering. Do you see the difference? I think the text paints a difference there that we're to to notice. And this is important. The the fundamental difference is not in what was given, right? Just just understand that. Later in the Mosaic law, there are going to be offerings of fruits and vegetables that God instructs his people or allows his people to give. There's nothing necessarily inherently better about what they offered. That's not the issue. The difference, though, seems to be that Cain has held back his best, suggesting that he doesn't really value or trust God, but that Abel gives freely of the best he had, which suggests that he does trust and value God. And so as a result of this attitude behind Abel's offering, the Lord looked upon him with favor, And he did not look favorably upon Cain and his offering. Now, we don't know what happened to demonstrate that God approved of of Abel. We don't know if God consumed the offering. We don't know. The text isn't interested in telling us. All the text wants us to see is that God was pleased with Abel and his offering. And he was displeased with Cain and his offering. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, that great chapter on faith, we see that that as Abel brought his offering, he did so in faith. So that it was the faith of Abel 
that made his offering approved and pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended. God commending him by accepting his gifts because of his faith, right? But the text isn't interested to go into detail. It only wants us to see that God accepted Cain, or Abel and he rejected Cain. And so Cain, because of this rejection, begins to seethe with jealousy and anger. The text tells us that Cain was very angry. He was very angry and his face fell. Cain's anger, the the way the text is written there, Cain's anger burned so intensely that you could see it in his facial expression. His face literally gave him away in his anger. Maybe you felt like that before, or or you've seen someone who was so angry, it it was written on their face. This is what the text tells us. Cain's anger burned so much that you could see it. And it burned because God did not look favorably upon his offering. Now, listen, Cain is unaware of this at the moment, but he is in grave danger right now. If he's not careful, sin and his pride is going to consume and destroy him. And this is the essence of God's warning to him in verse 6. He tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. In the the, the Net Bible, its desire is to dominate you. But God says, you must rule over it. You must subdue it. If Cain would have done what was right with a right heart, everything would have been fine. God would have accepted his offering. Cain would not have become angry. His face would not be downcast. He would seemingly have been able to enjoy the blessings of God's provision from the ground with a a thankful and a happy heart. But Cain's heart is not right within him. And that is not pleasing to God. And so God gives him this graphic warning. And and in this warning, sin is pictured as a hungry beast that seeks to overpower and destroy its prey, sitting in ambush, waiting to pounce. Reminds me of the way Satan is is depicted in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter says, to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I remember in my, our, our first, the first house we lived in, in Galway, there was a window in my office and I would always look out the window. That's my Achilles heel is windows. I would look out the window and just stare and one day I saw a little cat this little cat would come into our garden from time to time. And I remember one day watching this cat, and this cat's kind of just bouncing around, you know, hey, nice. And then all of a sudden, boom, just stops and stares intently. You know, gets down on its 
haunches and starts creeping. And I thought, oh man, he's found something. He's on the prowl. He's waiting to ambush whatever this is and take it as prey. And that's the way sin is pictured here. In the ancient Near East, there were stories uh, of, a, of a demon, a devil, uh, who sat in ambush on the, the other side of the threshold of a door, waiting for people to come in so that he could devour. That's the way sin is pictured here. And he states that, that sin desires Cain. Sin's desire is to dominate Cain. Again, we're not to forget this picture of sin that the author paints in this text. He wants us to remember that sin is hungry to overpower, to control, and to destroy Cain's life. But there's an escape. The question is, will Cain heed this warning? Will we heed this warning? Because see, look, we're not that different from Cain because sin is out to devour us as well. And so will we stand firm in the spirit as Peter encourages us or will we allow sin to destroy us? Think about your own life. Think about how many times has your pride or your desire to serve yourself become a kind of snowflake that begins an avalanche of consequences in your life, a spark that begins this, this huge forest fire? How many times has some kind of fear or hurt or loss triggered in you an anger that begins to control and consume you? See, God sees the spark of self-interest and pride in the life of Cain. And he desires that Cain will see it too and will do something about it before it gets out of hand. Because rest assured, just as sin sits in ambush and desires to overpower and destroy Cain, so it also sits in ambush and desires to overpower you and me. So often we are oblivious. And see, this is the ruse, okay? This is the, uh, this is the play that sin has. We're promised, back in Genesis 3, remember the serpent, we're promised autonomy. We're promised that we can be the masters of our own destiny. We're promised that we can actually determine what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. That's a fraud. Because what we're left with is slavery. We end up dying as slaves to sin. And sin is a cruel master. Sin didn't just desire to devour Cain. That's not enough. It wants us too. It wants us too. So will we heed the warning? Listen, honestly, some of us won't. Some of us won't. And our lives will be lived with consequence after consequence after consequence. And sadly, neither did Cain. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Now, there's several, uh, several texts, several manuscripts that add in what he actually said to his brother. If you have an NIV, you'll see that the NIV includes this. The ESV puts it in a marginal note. But Cain speaks to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. 
And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain and Abel go out into the field. And once there, the text tells us that Cain rises up and he kills Abel. Now, just make a note as we read that verse in the next verse. You see the word brother mentioned five times. Five times. We are to be absolutely stunned that Cain would murder his own brother. And yet, we probably shouldn't be surprised. Because God has already warned Cain that sin wants to devour and overpower him. But that warning, having gone unheeded, now plays itself out in murder. The sin that caused Cain grudging, to, to grudgingly make an offering to God is now escalated. And it's led him down the path to murder. And the sad thing is, he followed. And as soon as I feel shock when I read that, I'm reminded of James' words to me in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Sounds an awful lot like Cain. And yet that's our experience too, isn't it? The sin that is in me, when kindled, causes me to devour the ones closest to me, just like Cain did. And it does that to you too. It does that to you too. Well, verses 9 to 15 contain kind of a second dialogue between God and Cain. This time, though, uh, it's a little different. The dialogue doesn't contain a warning, but a judgment. In verse 9, God comes to Cain and asks him a question. Where is Abel, your brother? Now, just make a note of, of Cain's response. It's an escalation in one sense of the response of his parents in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, uh, they tried to deflect blame. They were naive and a little bit maybe evasive. But Cain is callous and deceptive in his response to God. He says to God, I do not know, which we would call a lie, right? <laughs> he does know because he did it. Uh, but he says, I do not know. And then he gets bold. You know, I mean, some, some of your parents might have smacked you if you had responded to them in this way. Am I responsible for my brother? Am I the shepherd's shepherd? Is it really my responsibility what happens to him? And so God asks another question. What have you done? What have you done? Now, just like in chapter 3, God isn't asking because he's looking for information. This is an invitation to confession. And restoration only flows through confession. And so God is inviting Cain to take responsibility and to come back unto restoration. Now, growing up, there were many times that my parents asked me, what did you do? And nine times out of ten, they already knew what I did. It wasn't a question, uh, a desire for information. They just wanted to hear it from me. 
so that they knew that I knew that what I did was wrong and that I was in trouble. And they were inviting me in to restoration through that confession. See, one of the reasons we know that God knew what Cain did is the next phrase. He says to him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The land, Cain, is snitching on you. It's turned you in. I know what you did. I just want to hear you say it. And the Lord has heard and he's going to avenge Abel's death. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman were not cursed themselves in relation to the land. The land was cursed in Genesis 3. They were removed from the garden of delight. Here in verse 11, though, it's Cain that is cursed in relation to the land. The land is no longer going to bear fruit for him. Cain is banished from the ground in that respect. God tells him, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. See, part of God's blessing from the beginning was provision from the ground. Even if it was earned by sweat and toil, but Cain loses that blessing as he's banished from the once fertile land. He's going to have to fend for himself because the ground is not going to open up to him and give its best crop. The second part of God's curse is tied to the blessing that God gives in community or family. Since the ground won't yield, Cain won't be able to farm, and he is forced to become a, a restless wanderer on the earth. He's removed from the family. Uh, in one sense, he is sent outside the camp. He's alienated from his family. The text literally calls him a fugitive and a wanderer. He's going to be on the run, restless and alienated. And in this, we see the fall of the family. And in all of that, Cain refuses to accept any responsibility. Instead, he complains about the punishment in verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear, he says. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What Cain is saying, although he probably wouldn't phrase it this way, is that he really doesn't want to go where sin has taken him. But it's too late. It's too late. He recognizes that his relatives are going to pursue him in order to take vengeance on Abel's death. Now, incidentally, just remember, these guys lived a long time and they're having kids all over the place, right? So you think, who's going to kill Cain? Well, it's going to be, in one sense, his family are going to come after him. He recognizes that. But God vows to protect Cain from those that are going to seek to kill him. Now, it's debatable whether this is an act of grace or simply a way of keeping Cain from, from being killed immediately without enduring the punishment that's set forth by God. But, but either way, God promises to severely punish anyone who takes Cain's life. And then he places a mark on Cain that identifies him as one on whom the curse of God rests. Now, again... We have to be really careful here. The text isn't concerned to tell us what the mark is. And there can be all kinds of speculation. But at the end of the day, we don't know because God didn't want us to know. You can ask him one day 
When you get to heaven, God, what was the mark you gave Cain? But the text doesn't want us to know, and so it doesn't tell us. And the story ends with Cain leaving God's presence, condemned to a life of restless wandering and alienation. Verse 16 says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. What a tragic story. What a tragic end to this particular story. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain is ushered out of God's presence for good. Look, this is what we learn from Cain. Here it is. Sin always, 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 always takes us where we do not want to go. And sin always leaves us there longer than we want to stay. Once Cain hit that slippery slope of sin that began with his pride and self-interest, it didn't take long before he was murdering his brother. The consequence of that action was a punishment he didn't really like, right? But look, we've got to understand the the, the The consequences of sin are not enjoyable, whether they're natural consequences or the discipline of God. But here's the thing. Once we hit that slippery slope of sin, it is hard to stop the slide. It is hard to stop the slide. It's going to continue to deeper sin, to harsher consequences. How many times have we heard of people, godly men and women, who have seen marriages collapse, or uh, people who slowly succumb to alcoholism, which leads ultimately to the loss of everything, or the alienation and distress that comes when bitterness gets a root in our hearts and overtakes us. Listen, nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I want to ruin my life. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. And yet, it so often happens because we are so oblivious to our enemy's schemes that we play around with sin and we give it a foothold, not realizing that it doesn't just want a foothold. It wants to consume all of us. Sin will always take us where we do not want to go. Be it the loss of a marriage, the loss of a job, the loss of friends, prison. Sin always takes us where we don't want to go, and it always keeps us there longer than we want to stay. Sin is not an overnight guest. It always outstays its welcome. So, what must we do? What must we do? Well, to state it first negatively... Don't let sin in the door. The old Puritan John Owen, uh, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't let sin in the door. Understand, sin is just waiting for an opportunity to overpower and destroy you. Like a hungry lion, your enemy seeks your very life. Unlike Cain, you and I must heed that warning. But here's the thing, here's the thing, the power of resistance does not originate in us. 
We can't do this. We need a power that comes from outside of us in order to withstand the attacks of our enemy and subdue the sin that seeks to devour. See, our hope for any kind of change or victory only lies in the gospel of Jesus that tells us that God has saved us through faith in Jesus from the power of sin over us. Through his spirit living in us, we can say no to sin. Through his spirit who lives in us, we can subdue the sin that desires to overtake us. And here's what the Spirit does. Through the ordinary means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, the community of faith, the Spirit draws our attention and affection more deeply away from ourselves towards the all-sufficient and satisfying beauty of Jesus. That's what the Spirit does in us. Because, here's the thing, when Jesus is big, sin seems small. When Jesus tastes good to us, sin tastes bad. It's like drinking orange juice after you brush your teeth, right? It ruins the flavor. And this is what the Spirit does, is He continually draws us back to the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus for us. Thomas Chalmers argued the only way to destroy one desire is for a greater desire to take its place. Here's how he said it. The only thing that can dispossess the heart of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. This is what the Spirit does. Over time, bends our hearts so we see that Christ is our all in all. And that cannot help but change the way we live. So let's state it positively. We must allow the Spirit to work in us to make Jesus big in our hearts. This is the only way that we can kill sin before it kills us. Religiosity won't do it. Doing good deeds won't do it. Effort alone will not do it. It is only effort that is fueled by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. If we don't kill sin, take it to the bank, we will end up somewhere where we don't want to be. And we will be there longer than we would like. It's out to devour us. The good news, the good news is that Jesus died to set us free. Not just from the penalty of sin, but even from its power over us. And the bigger he becomes for us, the smaller sin becomes. So don't let sin in the door. Don't play around with it. Kill it as you allow the Spirit, working through the Word, through prayer, through the community of faith, to make Jesus big in your heart. You know, in the ranks of mountain climbing, few things are feared more than avalanches. 
It only takes a, a small piece of snow or, or debris at the top of the mountain to build into a devastating avalanche that destroys not only lives, not only property, but anything in its path. And that's what sin does. Unless we kill it by the power of the Spirit working in us. Let's pray. Father, what a sobering story this is. This story of the way sin captivated and overpowered Cain. I pray, Father, that as we read it, that we would learn from his example. And as we think about killing sin in us, and we all know that there is still sin in us. And as we think about killing the sin that is in us, I pray that we would realize that we cannot do it. That we need your spirit. We need the grace of your presence in the spirit to empower us to kill the sin that wants to overtake us. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would make Jesus big, that he would be our all-sufficient satisfaction that we would see the cross and what you did in response to our need father that that would compel us to see sin destroyed father i pray that sin would taste really bad for us that jesus would taste really good And Father, for those that are still enslaved to sin today, having never trusted in Christ, Father, they know the destructive power of sin. And I pray, Father, that you would move in their hearts to turn and to trust in Jesus. And he would remove the penalty of their sin, rescue them from its power, as all of us look one day to being fully rescued from even the very presence of sin. Would you work in our hearts, Father? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.